The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio, and this is Jerry Prokopovich. You may not have heard of Robert Bunch. British consul in Charleston, South Carolina from 1853 onward, in part because he wanted it that way. Keeping a low profile was important for a representative of the world's greatest empire at a time when the world's greatest republic was about to tear itself to pieces. How Bunch managed to keep a ringside seat and keep London informed and what he saw are all part of the story we'll hear tonight from Christopher Dickey, author of Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system, but not representing the rest of the system or the rest of the university, even the history department. I'm just speaking for myself, as I know our guest will likewise do tonight, as we always do, or as we've always done in the past, it looks like this could be the end of the world based on the weather tonight. It's very dark. Rain is pouring down. Flashes of lightning have appeared. 
It's the first Wednesday in February of 2016, if you're downloading this in the distant future, uh, if there is a distant future, uh, because it's, it's looking apocalyptic outside, but hopefully things will calm down, we'll have a show, get home safely. Uh, definitely don't want the world to end before this weekend, because it's, it's the weekend the whole world looks forward to every year, the big sporting event that uh, everybody talks about. Uh, the hoopla almost overwhelms the event itself. I'm referring, of course, to the North Carolina Adult Soccer Association men's over-50 uh, tournament in Wilmington on Saturday and Sunday, where your Greenville Stars varsity will be participating, as we always do. I'm a little concerned that in past years our, our captain would organize via email and get us together for a practice or two so we'd remember what shape the ball was. Uh, didn't do that this year, so we're just going to roll out of bed after not touching a ball in six months, and there's going to be some aching uh, muscles and pulled body parts. and Who knows what's going to happen. It's going to be rough on Saturday, but we'll have fun. Uh, I'll, I'll report back to you, hopefully still ambulatory next Wednesday, how we do the Greenville Stars in that tournament. Uh, unless you, of course, want to you know, fly into Wilmington and get a seat, there are still tickets available. In fact, I don't think you need a ticket. You show up at the park and look for the old guys. We'll all be out there. Uh, in other sports news, uh, today was signing day for college players. That's become a big thing, all bigger than past years. As uh, someone put it recently in a chronicle of higher education, it's not like athletics is the tail that wags the dog at college. It's more like athletics is the Clifford, the giant red dog that wags the increasingly frayed tail of academics. Uh, and I'm happy to get on that bandwagon and say that the Pirates here at ECU got some good last-minute signings for next year's team. And my alma mater, Michigan, got the number one guy in the country, Rashawn Gary, so we're all psyched for next season. Uh, and you can find out what's happening not next season, but later this season, here on Civil War Talk Radio by checking out www.impedimentsofwar.org, which has, as always, the news of what's going on. Next week, it will be Mark McLaughlin. He is the designer of Rebel Raiders on the High Seas, a simulation game uh, published by GMT Games on the battle uh, the, the ocean conflict, uh, the blockade runners and commerce raiders of the Civil War era. He's designed other games on the conflict, and we'll talk about that way of understanding history. Following that, on February 17th, David T. Dixon will be with us to talk about the lost Gettysburg Address, not one that uh, somebody could not find, but one that historians have forgotten about, the third speech given on that day in November 1863. And there will be more to come when I get to the show without too much delay. Uh, so we'll move ahead and just remind you, if uh, you are in the area next Wednesday, the next three Wednesdays, uh, 2 to 4 o'clock at the local Shepherd Memorial Library, I'll be teaching a informal course to lifelong learners about Abraham Lincoln. So if you live anywhere in the remote area, want to sign up for that, contact ECU's Lifelong Learning Program. And if you're 
looking for a way to really get into the Civil War this year in May, from 20, May 21, May 29. Check out Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I'll be leading the tour called This Hallowed Ground as we go from site to site, uh, exploring uh, Civil War history where it happened. Uh, I've had the privilege of doing this several times, and it's always fascinating. I enjoy it really more each time as I learn more about it and share with uh, guests who in turn often have fascinating stories to share. So consider that if you're interested in a, a great Civil War tour. And one favor to ask of you, uh, the listener today, I got a notice from a uh, uh, fan of the show about NPR's earbud.fm. Uh, looks like something you can click on. I'm not going to do that because I don't know where it'll take me. Uh, but it's described as a tool for discovering great podcasts, and they want listeners to tell them what the great podcasts are. So I immediately went into self-promotion mode, but then it says, here's the only rule. If you create radio or podcasts, don't recommend anything you've produced or the organization you work for. So I'm not. But if you find this podcast of value and think other uh, fans of uh, history in general, Civil War history in particular, might enjoy it, uh, consider going to earbud.fm and filling out the form there. It asks you for the title of the podcast and your favorite episode and a link. All the links are available from Voice America or Impediments of War and then tell them why that's a great episode. I think all 300 episodes are equally great. They're like my children and I love them dearly. But I'm sure some are better than others. If there's one you like and want to share with other uh, students of Civil War history, uh, please consider going to that site and let them know about Civil War Talk Radio. We've been doing this, uh, I've been talking with you for 12 years now. It's been been a while. And uh, the podcast industry has suddenly become popular in the last year or two. I still think of it as just picking up the phone and talking to you and a guest, but that's. Uh, but let's let the world find out about it. And let's find out about tonight's guest. Uh, Christopher Dickey joins us uh, at no small cost to himself because he's calling in from across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, he is the foreign editor of the Daily Beast based in Paris, France. Uh, Mr. Dickey, are you there? I am. <clears throat> and I'm still awake, much to my surprise. I, I'm deeply in your debt. It, it's something something in the morning uh, where you are. It's dark and just seven seven ten over here. But I really do appreciate you uh, staying up to to join us for a chance to talk well, about fun. this. It's fun, and I feel like I'm uh, I'm kind of in touch with uh, North Carolina, a state I love. So it's great. I feel like I'm. I don't know if I feel like I'm in Greenville, but uh, <laughs> I actually well, you know, it's gr- better here than it is in Greenville right now. <laughs> Greenville, Paris, you know, what's to choose? It's a, it's a tough call. Uh, Many people have said that, yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they do call it G-Vegas, some of the students, in uh, sort of bitter self-deprecating irony here uh, in Greenville, but, uh, but Paris is just going too far. You've been in Paris for a while. You're Dust Jacket says you were uh, the bureau chief uh, and Middle East editor for Newsweek. Uh, you've you've served as a Cairo bureau chief for Washington Post. You've uh, you've you've been around the world doing things. Uh, how do you get a gig like that? 
Oh, luck, you know, mainly luck. <laughs> um, I took, a, you know, I took a lot of risks over time. I covered a lot of wars, and um, eventually they, revi- you know, they decided to reward me by sending me to Paris. But then, once I was in Paris, they started sending me back to the wars, all the wars in the Middle East over the last uh, twenty years. So, I guess that's how you do it. Uh, is that a career you'd always been interested in? Uh, did it? Did you knock about other things and then find journalism no, was the way to go? No, I mean, it wasn't. I, I mean, I, I was certainly interested in it once I got involved, but I mean, I started out, I sort of backed into the world of journalism. I started out working in the book section of the Washington Post as a hmm. copy editor and then started writing a column about books and then became an editor of the, of the Washington Post magazine. And... Um, Eventually, just wanted to go into hard news, sort of get out on the street some more, and covered immigrants in Washington, and then that led to Central America and the Middle East, and finally uh, being based here in Paris. Well, that seems to be the case for so many people who, who you know, find the the thing that, that is, you know, say what they're meant to do. Uh, it, it's not often a. a a one-way path from 18 years old, go to college, major in something, do it. Uh, the, the world has its way of, of getting us to where we're going to end up being. Um, well, that's what, probably why it's important where, where you start out. And I was lucky to be able to start out at the Washington Post, even though it was a part-time job. I have my younger daughter's a journalism major right now at, at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm always... Uh, looking for good stories to share with her. Just just get your foot in the door. Something good will happen. Uh, uh, if, if you have a passion for it, make it work. Now, uh, in terms of uh, writing about history, you've written books before. Had you written, before you wrote this book, had you written other, uh, uh, what do you call it, nonfiction history, uh, researched history? Yeah, but it was history that I had participated in firsthand. I mean, it, it was, if you will, that that area between the first draft of history and polished uh, scholarly work. Uh, my first book was about being in combat with the Contras uh, in Central America, but that was also very much a history of uh, of the wars of Central America, not only the ones I was directly involved with. And uh, I wrote a book about... Uh, foreigners, mainly Brits and Americans, uh, living in the Middle East, which was also a way of writing about the history of the Middle East. But I hadn't—I had never written a book that was quite like this, uh, which was really a, a deep dive into a particular corner of American history. So I, I'm really curious about that. That you, you've seen in three different levels. Uh, you know, the, the news writing is history you know, as it happens. And then taking time to research and write a book on something you've experienced is the next cut, and then writing about something in the 19th century, purely from documentary sources. Uh, did do did that experience of having done all three? Do you have a sense that of what the the flaws are in each of them, uh, where where they don't get the true story? Well, I mean, it's frustrating for. Uh, someone who's been a journalist all of his life to not be able to interview people who <laughs> participated directly in the action. But that's sort of out of the question. Although I work with a lot of young people at the Daily Beast, sometimes I need to explain to them that I didn't actually <laughs> cover the Civil War. Uh, no. But the, but, but the in, in fact, 
it's wonderful to be able to go through uh, documents and letters that are, have turned up over history, especially when you feel that maybe other people haven't seen them before, which was the case with this. I got access to documents that are in the public domain, uh, but mainly in Britain and mainly in rather obscure collections that people had not really delved into very deeply. And it just opened up a whole world uh, of what was going on in Charleston and in uh, the relations between the United States or the Union and the Confederacy and uh, Great Britain. So, so what tipped you to this topic? Well, it, oh, that's a long process, but it was originally um, the idea for a novel. I've written a couple of novels, thrillers, about modern terrorist events, uh, but I was reading a biography of Richard Francis Burton, who was a famous Middle mm -hmm. Eastern explorer, an African explorer in the middle of the 19th century, and his life is very well documented, uh, but there are about two months in the summer of 1860 where he just disappears in the United States. We know he was in New York and Washington. We know he was in New Orleans, and he resurfaces in St. Joe, Missouri, on his way out to interview Brigham Young and eventually write a book about the Mormons. But this was the eve of the Civil War. So what was he doing traveling through the South for two months? I don't know, and I never could find out. But in trying to solve that mystery... I came across Robert Bunch, and he was the, uh, became the central figure in the book that I wrote. So, we don't know what happened to... Uh, uh, we know to what happened to Burton, we just don't know what happened during those two months. We just don't know, it's, uh, just, it's like... The presumption, the presumption is that he was on some kind of spying mission. Uh, if not for the Crown itself, then for people like Lord Houghton, that he was very close to in, uh, in Great Britain. Uh, because everybody was very concerned about what would happen to cotton uh, if uh, the United States started to break apart. But we don't know that. There's no documentary evidence of what he was doing. So uh, Britain's interest in the United States is not just that of uh, an older brother or cousin. Uh, there's that strong financial interest in cotton, uh, and that accounts for much of the interest in this book as we follow the story of uh, Robert Bunch in Charleston during the, the pre-Civil War and Civil War years. What we'll do right now is take a short break, uh, have a few messages, and come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Christopher Dickey. He's the author of Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Christopher Dickey, author of Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. Uh, The story of Robert Bunch, consul, British consul in Charleston, South Carolina in 1853 and going forward. Uh, so, uh, Christopher, do you go away, Christopher? Chris? Is, is it, is well, we've Christopher? Uh, and, and call me Jerry, please. Uh, the last okay, name takes too long. Chris. All right. Don't that, call that'll me work. <laughs> that works. Um, so, the. Uh, Robert Bunch comes to Charleston in 1853. What is the role of a, a, a consul, a British consul at this time? What, what's he there to do? Well, the nominal role of a British consul was to look after shipping concerns and basic economic matters. Um, and that's what lots of consuls, I think there were about 14 British consuls in the United States, mainly in ports, although there was one in Richmond as well, um, uh, who were essentially looking at commercial questions. And most of them were almost what you would call honorary consuls today. They were not actually paid by Her Majesty's government. But Robert Bunch was one of the few who was sent to do a political job, and that was why he took the Charleston Post. Uh, he had been working his way up in the consular ranks, and he was given the assignment of dealing with the government of South Carolina about a law that had been put into effect in the early 1820s that said that any uh, black sailor on a a British ship uh, had to be taken off that ship if it made port in Charleston or any port in South Carolina and be thrown in jail until the ship left again. The idea was that these free black sailors on British ships would be subversive somehow and would help start slave rebellions uh, in Charleston or in the Carolinas. Uh, And that was a law, in fact, that that other states picked up eventually. The British uh, saw this as an intolerable affront to their subjects and to their sovereignty, uh, but they couldn't get South Carolina to reverse that law. And the first assignment that uh, Bunch had was to try and get that law turned around, which he eventually did, but it took him three or four years and he only did it by insinuating himself into Carolina society and making people believe that he was really on their side. In fact, he really was not on their side. And that's what the book is about. 
the the secret agent of uh, the, the title really comes in here. Uh, everybody knows he's representing the British government, but uh, talk a little bit about Bunch's reaction. Well, everybody to, knows. To everybody knows society. he's representing the British government, but they don't know <laughs> what he's telling the British government. And what he was telling ah. them was exactly the opposite from what he was telling the government. What he was telling the government, particularly. Uh, from about uh, 1856, 57 onward, was the South is going to secede. That's going to happen. Uh, it believes that it has control over British policy, that the Britain is so dependent on southern cotton uh, for 80% of the cotton uh, and in the mills of Lancashire uh, that uh, Great Britain will do anything uh, to keep that cotton flowing. Uh, but... Here was the, this was the, the, the point that he played on again and again. A large and mainly influential group of uh, Southerners, uh, led by people who were called the Fire Eaters, uh, were greatly in favor of reopening the slave trade with Africa. And that was something that the British could not tolerate. They could tolerate buying cotton that was grown by slaves in the South. They could make their peace with that and say, that's just an internal matter for the United States or for the Southern states. But they could not tolerate the idea that the slave trade with Africa would be reopened because that had been a moral crusade for Britain uh, since the early 1800s for more than 50 years. Uh, and Bunch convinced them uh, that, in fact, that would be the effect if the South succeeded in seceding and if the, if Great Britain should back it, which would have been essentially the deciding factor in the war, mm -hmm. then you would have had a situation where the South would reopen the slave trade. And he was so strong on that point and so convincing also to the British minister in Washington, Lord Lyons, that even when the first Confederate, when the Confederate Constitution was written in Montgomery, Lord Lyons wrote to London and said, don't believe a word of it vis-a-vis -vis the slave trade. They're doing this, they're saying this just to appease us, but the fact is they won't be able to enforce that and the slave trade will be reopened, and we absolutely cannot tolerate that. So, he, so Bunch sees clearly what, and, and hears in the, the drawing rooms of Charleston what the uh, the, the cotton growers want and expect what the fire eaters want and expect in terms both of secession and of reopening the slave trade. But he continues to be invited back into these drawing rooms because he doesn't let on that he's sending all this material back. Is, is that no, no, not only does he not let on, he's uh, really quite concerned that it will be uh, exposed. Uh, you know, he... Certainly, as the, the attack on Fort Sumter approached, as we had secession and then uh, and then the build-up to the attack on Sumter, there was, actually even before that, after uh, John Brown in, in 1859, there was what uh, Bunch called a reign of terror in South Carolina, and you could not say that you were against slavery. You couldn't question it. Uh, because you were likely to get ridden out of town on a rail or be tarred and feathered or worse. Uh, and this was a, an oppressive environment for anybody who was seen to be skeptical about slavery. So if his dispatches had been captured uh, by uh, anyone who had exposed what he was actually saying and 
many of them were not written in code, then uh, he could have uh, he could have found himself really in, in considerable peril, uh, and that was one of the problems that he had to deal with. But the other side of his life was uh, his sister-in-law married the biggest slave owner in North and South Carolina, <laughs> a man named Daniel Blake. And he was welcome in Daniel Blake's home, and he associated with the slave-owning arist- aristocrats and elite of, uh, of Charleston all the time. He was, at the, during race week, which was the big social uh, event of the year, uh, he would be in the, uh, in the particular part of the stadium that was regarded as the place where only the elite could sit. So he was leading, in fact, what, what was very clearly a double life. And that didn't become evident until uh, we started going, until I started going through his private correspondence. Uh, and then it all becomes really quite clear. What I found really quite fascinating about this was the, the willingness of the Charleston aristocracy to be duped by him, that they were so, they were so self-convinced that they were the New World version of the British aristocracy uh, that they, and that the British would depend on them for cotton, that they were culturally and economically linked, that they assumed this British government representative would, of course, agree with all of their opinions about Africans and slaves and cotton and everything else. And so he he's certainly treading a, a dangerous line trying to uh, fool them, but they they seem to want to be fooled. Well, I think they did sort of fool themselves again and again. And in fact, he would flirt with the idea. He would he would broach the idea occasionally, sort of semi-joking, that maybe if they were going to leave the Union, the Confederate States ought to think about rejoining the Commonwealth of uh, the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, people would uh, people would take him seriously. Uh, and you know, he it one during. In fact, it was during race week one year. Uh, he said, made a joke, you know, when he was making a toast and said, you know, uh, plates and trophies that are handed out here, you know, you could be getting one from the queen if you were only part of the empire. Maybe you should think about that. <laughs> and people came up to him and said, yes, what a great idea. You know, we, we really feel strongly that we would be better off than with this lunatic Lincoln in the, in the White House. So, you know, that was the kind of game that he played. Uh, and it was so successful at the end that when the British finally withdrew him in 1863, early 1863, um, the Charleston Mercury, which was a radical paper, a secessionist paper, and uh, had been owned and run by one of the great fire eaters, uh, the Charleston Mercury said that the British were pulling... Uh, bunch out because he was seen as being too sympathetic to the South. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he, 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 he wins this dangerous game. Now, the whole time he's doing this, just from a, a psychological point, it'd be extraordinarily difficult to keep up the facade constantly. Uh, did he ever go back to England or visit with other British uh, diplomats in the United States during this period? Rarely, uh, he would go. Well, he would go up to New York, um, where his wife had property, uh, every year for some months. Those months when Charlestonians and basically 
white Carol, South Carolinians abandoned the low country because of the risks of yellow fever and other mosquito-borne diseases. And he would go up to New York and spend time there, and he would see people, and he would also visit with Lord Lyons occasionally in Washington. Uh, but mainly he was down in Charleston, and I think he took two breaks where he went back to England briefly. Um, but, uh, but in fact, uh, as the war approached, nobody wanted him, nobody in London wanted him to be any place except in Charleston because that was the epicenter of secession and it was the heart of the rebellion. And he was the eyes and ears of the British Empire in Charleston, South Carolina. And as important as that role was, uh, the book gives a sense that, that Bunch had some unfulfilled ambition, that he he wanted to move up higher in the diplomatic service. Is that accurate? Well, he, he eventually was made uh, a minister to, uh, to uh, Colombia and to Venezuela, uh, which is what he had wanted to do. Uh, but uh, he was definitely a, a young guy on the make, at least when he started out. He was uh, in his early 30s. Uh, in 1853, I, I guess he's just turned 30 years old, and he was, you know, trying to work his way up the ladder. Um, and he thought that's why he thought this political assignment in uh, in Charleston would do him a lot of good. But even that was a high risk enterprise because he didn't really have any fallback position had he failed. So he was um, he was uh, always in a nervous environment. Uh, and I, I think he must have had a very interesting relationship with people like his wife, uh, who must have questioned many times what he was doing. Um, one, would, <laughs> one would think so. That would be... Uh, well, yeah. I mean, he, he had a... Bunch has a really interesting and strange, strange background, uh, because he was actually... Uh, his mother was from uh, a very well-connected family in New York City, uh, but his father was essentially a gun runner for Simon Bolivar in uh, Latin America, and, and Bolivar gave his father a big estate outside of Bogota, so that was where his big financial interests were, uh, his family's big financial interests. So he always had a sort of a hankering to go back to Bogota, and eventually he did. Uh, so we I want to go back to the question of the research for this book uh, for a moment. The uh, you said a lot of this you you found documents that no one had looked at in 150 years. Uh, this was in in British uh, repositories. Yeah, uh, the some people have looked at them, but they didn't sort of put the pieces together with, with what Bunch was doing. Um, the uh, as a historian, you know, a lot of times people talk about primary sources, but in fact, yes, they're looking at secondary sources and taking their, their uh, guidance from those. And because Bunch had been so successful at convincing people that he was pro-Confederate, in the literature about British consuls uh, and about British diplomacy in, uh, in the Civil War, he comes up again and again as somebody who was very uh, pro-Confederate. And what struck me when I was looking through these documents is that that just wasn't the case at all. And I started at 
at the, the British National Archives at Kew, which are wonderfully well organized. And those are the official documents uh, that he sent, his official dispatches. Um, and fortunately, at Kew, you can copy documents with a digital camera. So I could go over to uh, Britain for two, three days and literally copy a thousand pages. Of, uh, of the documents that I needed and then look at them later on my computer screen. Um, but that was very helpful. I mean, that was the core of the book originally. But I needed to know more and more personally about Bunch, and I needed to find more and more personal correspondence, and that was scattered all around. He, he had corresponded with various other diplomats, and their collections of letters in Great Britain are held in different places having to do with family legacies. So the, the most important correspondence was with uh, Lord Lyons, who was the minister in, uh, in uh, Washington from, I guess, late 1858 until up through the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And Lord Lyons' documents, his uh, papers, are all at Arundel Castle in West Sussex in mm-hmm. southern uh, Britain southern England. And when I went there the first time, I couldn't believe it. I was on a train going down to the town of Arundel, and I look out, and there's this, it looks like Disneyland, this enormous <laughs> castle. And I had made an appointment, and I go up to the door, and they open the door. It's, there are, it's open to visitors most days of the week, but not the day when you're supposed to do research. They mm-hmm. open the door, there's a guy with a golf cart who takes me through the grounds up over, I kid you not, the drawbridge <laughs> into, into the castle to meet the person who's receiving me. We then go through the great hall with literally with stands of armor all around and heraldic sim, you know, uh, shields uh. and up the tower that's called the Archive Tower and in the top of the tower is the office of the archives of the Duke of Norfolk. And they brought up from wherever they store them uh, boxes and boxes of Lord Lyons' letters, his letter books, his journals, and the correspondence he'd received from Bunch, and um, uh, some of which was in code. And it was uh, it was just fascinating. And I, they also allowed me to photograph those uh, documents. So again, I had literally thousands of pages to study. Well, that that makes being a historian sound far more romantic and interesting than it often is, uh, but, but a wonderful place to do some research. We're going to take another short break. We're talking today with Christopher Dickey, author of Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
you think you've seen online TV before. Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Christopher Dickey, author of Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. That secret agent is Robert Bunch, British consul in Charleston, South Carolina, where he uh, ostensibly kept an eye on British shipping and looked out for British interests, but in fact kept the British government closely informed as to what the secessionists were up to and what their misapprehensions were as to uh, how the British government would react. The lack of understanding that the uh, Chris, the lack of understanding that this book reveals is very interesting that the the slaveocracy of of Charleston is completely deluded as to how much power they will have over the policy of Great Britain and how Great Britain feels about them, in in some small part due to Bunch himself uh, acting like he agrees with everything he's hearing. But it's, uh, it's an interesting... Uh, testimony to the role of, of contingency and chance in history, that if Britain had sent somebody over uh, less adept than Bunch, who had either made it clear that you people are crazy, this will never work, or had in fact gone along with them, uh, could you know could the course of secession have been different, possibly? One wonders. Sure. Uh, look, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to overstate the case, but mm-hmm. Robert Bunch, in his way, contributed mightily to the outcome of the Civil War and to the failure of the Confederacy. Because the the Confederates were not completely crazy. The Southerners, the South Carolinians, were deluded in many ways, but they were not completely deluded. They believed that because uh, Britain was so dependent on Southern cotton, it would just have to back them. And a lot of people in Britain thought that, too. One of the interesting things about the secret correspondence is that Bunch's emphasis again and again on the slave trade 
was uh, making a point that appealed directly to the sensibilities of Lord Palmerston, who was the Prime Minister at that point, who had made the fight against the slave trade his personal crusade for decades. So, and saw as ending the slave trade with Brazil, for instance, in the early 1850s, as maybe the crowning achievement of his statecraft. So by harping on that point again and again, Bunch made it more and more difficult for Palmerston and his government to just say, well, our national interest says that we should support the South. Remember that the, the, the aristocracy in Great Britain and the government in Great Britain, they had no love for the idea of the American Republic. No. Uh, many of them... In, Many of them hated it, and they were happy to see it breaking apart. They thought that was just, you know, not such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that you can list all the reasons that, uh, the, that Great Britain would back the Confederacy, and they made sense at the time and would make sense even in hindsight, except for one, this one thing, this question of the slave trade and reopening the slave trade. That's something that is, that it's not just Robert Bunch, that issue is something that has never been examined closely enough, I think, in looking at the outcome of the Civil War. Because ask yourself, and you know this, of course, Jerry, if Great Britain, at the beginning of the Civil War, has said, yes, we recognize the Confederacy, and we are going to support its bid for independence, that would have been checkmate and game over. Great Britain was the biggest naval power in the world. It could have swept away the paper blockade of the first many months of the Civil War without even thinking about it. Now, there were issues. It was worried that Seward would, uh, and Lincoln would invade Canada if it mm -hmm. tried something like that. But, in fact, what really held it back was, uh, was this question of the slave trade. It came up again and again and again in the debates about recognizing the Confederacy, especially the private debates and correspondence. And at the end of the day, um, the South just never gave the right answer uh, when it, the question of the slave trade came up, or it never gave an answer that would convince uh, the British government that it was sincere. And, and Bunch himself encounters uh, people who are participating in the slave trade illegally in the 1850s, the smugglers. So it's not sure. just an academic he, possibility. It's, it's actually going on. No, a lot of it was going on. The, the slave trade in the 1850s, although it had been supposedly been outlawed, outlawed since 1807, the slave trade uh, was going full blast in the 1850s, mainly to Cuba. But we are talking mm -hmm. tens and then hundreds of thousands of slaves going to Cuba. Um, and there's a whole sort of subplot, not only in the book, but in history, where the United States wanted very much to take Cuba because it would have, get, would have given the slaveocracy two more states and four more senators uh, and would have kept, a, among other things, would have kept them in control of the Senate and of the national government. But that, as I say, is a bit of a subplot. But the slave trade that was going on to Cuba from West Africa to Cuba, hundreds of thousands of slaves, was almost all being done in the 1850s under the Stars and Stripes, under the American flag, because the British were not uh, able to board, not allowed to, and not able to board American flag ships. And the American, there was a small American squadron that was supposed to be interdicting these ships, 
but it didn't do anything, really, until 1858, when the British put so much pressure on Buchanan that he had to take some action. And in the same time, you had guys like Charles Lamar with The Wanderer uh, in, uh, in uh, Savannah, uh, and uh, you had uh, a man named Mayer uh, mm-hmm. in Mobile, Mobile Alabama, uh, who were actively bringing slaves from Africa onto American territory illegally, and their attitude toward the federal government was, uh, screw the federal government. They have yeah, no authority try, try over us. us. Huh? Exactly. So, you know, try and stop us. Uh, uh, yeah, just try and stop us. And what was happening in, in South Carolina was that when the British would capture an American slave ship, and uh, and would uh, would bring the the crew for trial uh, in the United States if the, that crew wound up in South Carolina, even though they was clearly guilty, they wouldn't even have a bill of indictment read out against them. Mm-hmm. Nobody would indict them in South Carolina. All of these were things that that Bunch reported on in great detail um, about the way the South was behaving, and. As, and that is why uh, eventually he was uh, he was so effective. Another thing I found interesting uh, about the book and about Bunch's experience was the ability to, that he had to meet people. He, he of course knew diplomats in Washington, uh, but you describe in I think it's 1861 meeting with uh, William Howard Russell, the famous war correspondent, mm-hmm. who's visiting the United States. And uh, Russell is traveling with Sam Ward, who is not a major character in in your book, but he's one of these guys who just keeps popping up uh, uh, in American history. I, there, there must be a Don't you love Sam yeah. Ward? I think he's just he, a fascinating character. He I is. Mean, he, he, not least because Julia Ward Howe is his sister. I mean, you know. Right. And, the, and he... But, 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 you know, he was this... He was, he lost several fortunes and remade them and and was somebody that just charmed everyone who knew him, it seems. Um, yeah. And he was secretly writing back when he was traveling with William Howard Russell. He was secretly mm-hmm. writing back to uh, people in the North about the situation in the South as well. But I, well, you, know, you can only put in so many characters. But. Exactly. Well, the famous, the, the anonymous diary of a public man from that that winter of 6061 that people for a century didn't know who wrote it and, and Ward was one of the prime suspects for many years and Daniel Croft's book a few years ago pretty much convincingly says it was William Henry Hurlbert but Hurlbert was a, a, a good friend of Ward and they worked together so when Ward's traveling with Russell and writing back to Hurlbert what's going on in Charleston that allows this material to appear in Washington papers anonymously and you know, bunch is connected with this. It, it just, it, it just the story is fascinating. Uh, all these connections. I wanted to ask you about the the major diplomatic uh, event of the U.S. Britain relationship in the Civil War. Certainly, in the early war, was the Trent affair. And uh, yeah. I, I know our listeners are familiar uh, with the outlines of that of uh, British diplomats being taken off a ship by the U.S. Navy. Uh, leading to threats of war. Uh, what role did Bunch play in, in, in that event? Well, it wasn't that he played a direct role in the Trent Affair, but what had happened was, and this is one of the ironies of history, uh, 
Bunch was at the middle of a crisis just before the Trent Affair that already had people talking about war. <laughs> because mm. Seward, uh, the Secretary of State of the Union, yes, uh, who also was running the spying operations for the Union, uh, w- intercepted uh, a, uh, a letter that Bunch had written. He intercepted a whole diplomatic pouch, but he didn't open that. But among the, the letters around that pouch, because you had to use couriers to get stuff out because, there was, uh, uh, because of the problems crossing lines, uh, was a letter actually unsigned that said that Bunch had been in contact with uh, Richmond, with the Confederate leadership, uh, to try and get Richmond to uh, observe the various uh, elements of the Neutrality Act and Law of the Sea. And Seward concluded that the bunch was really on the Confederate side and that he was trying to make preliminary moves toward uh, recognition of the Confederacy. And Seward threw a fit and demanded that uh, Bunch's uh, credentials be removed, what was called his exequator, which is a mm-hmm. consular credential, be removed by the British, and the British government refused. So they, were, of course, knew perfectly well what Bunch's reporting actually said, mm-hmm. and they knew that that, uh, that Seward's charges against him were completely off base, but then again, they couldn't tell Seward that. So this led to a big crisis with Seward threatening, making all kinds of threats, and Seward all along had been threatening war and threatening war with Britain and then would tell people he didn't really mean it privately uh, in this sort of crazy kind of bluff uh, against the greatest naval power in the world. And Bunch had brought, the, the Bunch crisis uh, had brought uh, Palmerston and Russell in, uh, in London to the point where they were really absolutely fed up with, uh, with Seward and his threats. And it was just at that point when that had not calmed down, that uh, Captain Wilkes, uh, a, a sort of uh, an aging and frustrated uh, Union uh, naval command, naval uh, captain, um, on board the San Jacinto, intercepted the British packet ship uh, Trent and took off of it two uh, Confederate delegates or emissaries uh, to uh, James Mason and um, and uh, uh, John Slidell. Slidell, yeah, Slidell, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and took them, and they were taken up to prison in New York, and that created a huge, huge incident. Then we really, then then Palmerston really started moving troops, and uh, it looked like there was going to be a war uh, that would have been very much to the benefit of the Confederacy. Uh, between the Union and Great Britain because of that uh, that incident. But, uh, fortunately, communications were very slow, and even though tempers were very high, there was a moment when, the, uh, the, when uh, Lord uh, Palmerston, the Prime Minister, uh, was sending a letter uh, to Seward and to Lincoln basically threatening war and, and offering an ultimatum that if they did not release Slidell and Mason, it, was, it would be war. And that was looked at, that had to be looked at by Queen Victoria. And she was giving a dinner party, and in any case, gave it to her husband, Prince Albert, who was sick in bed 
but who got up and read it and uh, inked in several changes which were accepted by Palmerston. And those changes uh, were uh, to the wording that in such a way that it allowed Lincoln and Seward a way out. And, um, when, and it's actually the last thing that Prince Albert ever did. He died of typhoid a couple of, years, a couple of days later. When the letter he, got to uh, Lincoln and Seward, uh, I think that is when, uh, when Lincoln uttered the famous phrase, one war at a time. And exactly. they decided that, they, that that would give them the, uh, the uh, that they had enough room to maneuver so that they could release Slidell and, uh, and Mason, and so they did. And so that was, it, it, and the it was that close. Died. It was that close. It was really close. The, the the role of contingency in history again comes to the fore. Chris, I, I'm well, sorry to say we're yeah. at the end of our time. Uh, I'm getting the note from the engineer. We've got to clear the line for the next show. Uh, this has been <laughs> utterly fascinating, uh, and I really appreciate you staying up in the middle of the night there in Paris to talk with uh, all of us tonight. But listeners, you will want to get a copy of Our Man in Charleston. Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South. I found it a fascinating book, uh, and I know you will, too. And again, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Jerry, thank you. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.